Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. I saw recently there was a new PR that came up in Phoenix Live View talking about live sessions, optimizing navigation purely over WebSockets. I think we're still speculating at this point because there's no docs yet, but I just wanted to call our attention to it. It looks interesting. It looks like something that could, I don't know, we were talking earlier. What do you think, David? David had some speculations about what some things that might help. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. So I don't wanna I don't wanna spread too much false information here, but I'll tell you a pain point that I have in all my live view projects. And I hope that live session could maybe help me with that. But the pain point I I always have is that my, my navigation bar in all of my web pages with live view, my navigation bar is outside. It's rendered out of my, my root template, right? And so all my, all my links, you know, they do live patches or even live redirects, you know, in to itself, like it's a fully live view app, but my navigation bar is not aware of those route changes, and so I have to put in extra JavaScript in there. And for me, that's usually Alpine JS. I usually have to put in some extra Alpine in there to emit changes when the route uh, changes as well. And then Alpine watches that event and then updates the classes for my navigation bar to signify that you're currently on this tab, you know, now or that tab. It's always painful. <laughs> so I, I hate setting that up every single time. I mean, I get it to work, but the, the pain point is that I have to work with um, both dead views and live views. And so it has to, when, when the link comes in, I have to know that it's a live socket or a, uh, or a con, a plug con. Grab the route information out of that and then do some iffy matching on there to, to, to determine what, what's a base route I'm on, uh, that kind of thing to, to update my class, just to update my classes in my nav. So it's like a lot of work. Uh, anyway, so that's the pain point I have. And live session sounds like it could help with that just because of, of the, the quote there it says optimized live navigation purely over WebSockets. So all that stuff sounds like something to do with navigation. Yeah. (laughs) Navigation. Yeah. Hmm. There's, there's a lot of interesting things coming down the pipeline, excited for the next releases of Phoenix and Phoenix Live View. Yes. And speaking of Phoenix Live View, there's another PR that also has not yet been merged. So when both of these land, I'm sure we'll have more to talk about. But this one is about a comprehensive rewrite of the Phoenix asset pipeline. And so there's two poll requests. One is around how it specifically impacts live view, and the other one is just Phoenix in general. But I'm also just really looking forward to that next release of Phoenix. You know, we've we've had <laughs> OTP, we've had Elixir. It's like, come on, Phoenix, come on. I'm I'm ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the rewrite of the JS uh in the Phoenix projects, I don't I don't suspect that that's gonna really affect anybody uh downstream. The only thing I that might affect it is is uh working towards proper ECMAScript modules, ES modules. So like your typical imports and stuff like that might be a little bit different, but I, I don't, th- I don't think the rest of it is really going to affect, you know, users of Phoenix. It's going to affect developers of Phoenix for sure, but not users. I remember there was a bit of chatter around one of the aspects of this rewrite was to help in development mode. So they are right now using pre-compiled versions of the Phoenix assets. And I think this will change it so that you're actually using uncompiled versions so that as you're developing, you can kind of use the debugger and you can kind of see what's happening in the stack traces. So I think this was one of the points of the rewrite, but it looks like the scope has maybe expanded or it's just one minor point. And that's stack traces for inside of the Phoenix JavaScript. Yeah. Right. 
So it might just be that when you are ready to upgrade to that new version of Phoenix, you'll have to revisit your asset pipeline and how it's all hooked up with Webpack. And I'm sure there'll be some documentation around that when we get to that point. But yeah, so it'll be something to look for. Getting off the Phoenix train for a minute. There's a pretty cool new wiki out there. It lives in the Elixir forum. Um, and this, this wiki is about Elixir gotchas and common issues. So if you're just now coming around to Elixir, you know that every every framework, every language usually has their list of gotchas. You know, <laughs> these are common things veteran Elixir developers just know to avoid or whatnot. And so this this wiki is a good collection of those helped manage by uh, Axelson, uh, which we've had on on the show before. It's over on Elixir forum. It's a good post and a good resource. And yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of us has probably encountered issues like this before. So uh, some of this may f- sound familiar, and if not, good things to learn. Yeah, just as a for instance, like one of the gotchas is that it's easy to forget to put a do at the end of like your def function declaration. You know, if you're coming from Ruby, you didn't have a do. So it's like def my function <laughs> do, just little things like that. It's not like a problem with the language or anything, but it's just like a little gotcha that, oh, here's something you need to be aware of. Yeah, a lot of these I've hit. And when I'm talking about Elixir and teaching people Elixir, these are things they hit. So it's a great little resource to be able to point to, to help other people. So I'm glad to see this as a community resource. Yeah. Pattern matching on keyword lists too. Yeah. I used, yeah. I used to try to do that. Order matters. Order matters. <laughs> yeah. That's um, a good one. Next up, the French government is using Elixir and Phoenix for its National Access Point of Mobility project. So this is actually a project hosted on GitHub. I, you know, it's kind of one of those things where I think for public projects, they need to be open source and available. So this might be a result of a government initiative like that. So it's cool just to see that and something you can browse around and check out. The readme and everything is in French, as you might expect. So I didn't get much out of it personally, but uh, something cool just to see that, yes, governments are giving like, you know, you're getting approval and things like that to use Elixir and Phoenix for government sponsored development projects. All right, next up, I don't know if this isn't really news. This is this is like a, a wow factor for me, right? I came across this in my Twitter feed uh, from Hendrik Mons. It's folks talking about LiveView. He he's taking a look at it from another approach that I'm not familiar with, which is web components and like WebGL, like interactive 3D. I, I don't do that kind of development. And I always think that's very interesting. So he he's taking a look at it, and I see. I wish you could see it, you know, listener with with me. The the video that this this fella has on the Twitter feed. This looks like a video game, right? Fully mm-hmm. rendered 3D spaceship going through an asteroid field, you know, towards a a sun of some sort of star. It, what he says is that this wet this is live view and web components, you know, are a, are a fun combination. And if you can stomach the JS required for them, uh, using it for server driven interactive 3D. All right, mind blown. And seeing this was like, <laughs> this is amazing. If live view is powering that somehow, I gotta know more. So uh, I, I follow this guy. So when we see more, I'll let you know. But that's all we know so far. Check out the little demo. It's pretty cool. Last up, the Hera platform was announced. It's a project that runs on GRISP boards. The project purpose is to aggregate many independent IoT sensors into a combined coherent view. For solving this kind of problem, it appears to be the best low-cost platform that exists. So we'll leave a link if that's something that you're interested in. Yeah, it looks like it was part of a master's thesis. So someone is using Erlang on IoT and GRISP boards to do some pretty cool stuff with sensors. And that's it for the news. Today, our special guest is Ilya. Ilya, welcome to the show. Hello, my name is uh, Ilya Avirianov, and I'm an Elixir programmer. I'm from Russia, from Moscow. 
I'm a technical lead of a small company uh, which um, develops software for mostly telecom uh, engineering for mobile operators, uh, uh, for most of the mobile operators uh, of uh, Russia. Our stack uh, includes Elixir for uh, many years. It also includes uh, Erlang. It includes uh, Ruby and uh, pieces of uh, Java and uh, Golang. Wow, that's quite a collection of languages there. So I'm happy to have you here because you wrote this really fun article about solid principles and how you were applying those to Elixir. So if you're kind of been in the tech space for a long time or especially object-oriented, you might be familiar that this is talking about object-oriented design principles. But it's like, well, Elixir is functional, so I don't see how that applies. But I loved how you brought it together and said, no, there's a lot of wisdom and things that actually still apply. I think it'll be a fun discussion. But before we jump into that, I did want to hear a little bit more about what you're doing because it sounds like you know, you're working in telecom. So Erlang, obviously, it makes sense just because of the heritage of Erlang. But I am curious, like, has the company been doing Erlang for some time? And when did Elixir come in? And kind of how did you guys come to Elixir? Many years ago, we as a company started with uh, small, simple projects. They were mostly web projects. They were uh, written in uh, Perl. It was popular, but uh, it was decaying. And we started to search uh, alternatives and uh, found Rails, which uh, is great framework and it is a great framework even now and we solved many problems of our company with this framework but uh, when uh, a certain amount of time passed we saw that not all of the problems can be solved with ruby with rails because of performance issues because of uh, support issues and we uh, started to looking for something that we could introduce and we introduced erlang and uh, some services which uh, required some heavy uh, message sending uh, stuff, we uh, wrote them in Erlang and uh, we really liked it. And uh, the starting point of uh, Elixir was when uh, Phoenix, the web fr framework uh, Phoenix, uh, came out, uh, its uh, first stable uh, version, and uh, we decided to dive into Elixir 2, and um, we liked it too. We started to consider the whole Elixir stable after uh, Phoenix came out, and uh, it uh, really was. We were able to rewrite many small projects such as APIs in uh, Elixir uh, without losing uh, the speed of uh, coding, without the speed of delivering appeared to be very useful, very convenient for uh, development of, uh, of certain kinds of projects. I think it's interesting that you guys went from Ruby, recognizing that it wasn't a perfect fit for what you needed, and you went to Erlang first. I think that's interesting. That's not usually the path you hear about. You hear about Ruby to Elixir. So it's just kind of anything you want to say about that? There were some reasons in uh, Russia there was a small but very active community around uh, Erlang. Perhaps uh, this influenced uh, us a bit. Also, there weren't many alternatives because uh, Golang uh, wasn't 
mature yet and uh, the only other choice was java and um, for some reasons we didn't want to dive into java so i'd love to jump into this topic now where we're talking about solid maybe you can first give some background to what the solid principles are you know where does this come from solid principles became uh, popular mostly i think after the works of robert martin uh, which invented the whole word solid. And uh, solid principles consist of five principles. And the important thing about them that they are principles. And I consider them as principles, not as patterns. And this uh, means a lot, because uh, the fact that these ideas are principles allow us to apply them more widely than patterns. Unfortunately, think that these principles were introduced in the late 80s or uh, in the early 90s when object-oriented features were uh, very uh, selling and everybody wanted to sell object-oriented languages and everybody wanted to buy uh, object-oriented languages. And these principles were formulated as object-oriented principles. But uh, as uh, I think, and this idea is quite popular, that these principles are much wider and then they uh, can be applied practically to any code. Yeah, I do like that distinction, saying that these, these are principles because principles can be applied more broadly than specifically saying this is how you write code. Right, like this, you put this over here, and this is how you organize this piece of code. It's not about that. We have a link to this in the show notes, but like the Wikipedia solid page gives a little bit of a history of it and identifies, you know, it wasn't until 2004 with Michael Feathers that this solid acronym was kind of finalized or introduced. But like uh, one of them, the, the S in solid is single responsibility principle. You know, the quote is there should never be more than one reason for a class to change. And so the use of class says, oh, this is object-oriented. Oh, that doesn't apply. But no, the principle of there should never be more than one reason for some piece of code, a module to change. That principle still applies. So I love that we can talk about this and see how you applied this in your situation to solve some problems that came up in a project. I want to add one uh, more thing is uh, that uh, very often we tend to make a mistake and um, I myself uh, made it many times when uh, we change some tooling. We think that we escape the old problems uh, that when we change object-oriented language to functional language, we <laughs> escape the problems of object-oriented languages. And we don't need all that uh, object-oriented pattern stuff. And, well, we are free of our old mistakes. And we are in a new, shiny, and brilliant world. But <laughs> uh, I think it would be wonderful to live in such a world. <laughs> and uh, as we see, most of the problems we bring with ourselves also, I want to add that Elixir is a functional language and it has a special tooling. For example, Gen Service, Gen Stage Service, and all that. These are very powerful tools. 
but these tools are about solving non-functional issues. And we should distinct without things that help our system to function in runtime, such as uh, against server or against stage, and uh, things that help us to organize our code. And solid principles are about organizing our code. Against stage, servers are about non-functional requirements. Then servers don't help us to organize our code. They help our code to function in production. In a document about against stage, there is a note that, for example, we shouldn't use against stage for organizing our pipelines. We should organize our pipelines with simple modules, with simple functions, and use against stage only for things that are required special uh, handling, special handling of uh, uh, message load, uh, etc. Yeah, I like where you identify there that the actor pattern, gen servers, and specifically you're talking about gen stage, that's not a code organization pattern. And I love that you point to the documentation. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, There is also a wonderful article which I advise to read. It's an article from the Erlang Angelist blog. It's called Spawn or Not, and it is about modeling a game of cards and uh, it tries to model it with gen service, and uh, later uh, the author comes to conclusion that we don't need any gen service at all. We just need uh, modules, we just need uh, data, and we just need functions. And that is all. Yes, that's a so the Erlangist is uh, Sasha Yurik's blog uh, for you, dear listener. And yes, this is a, a post that was very helpful for me. It's called To Spawn or Not to Spawn. It's very helpful for me when I was trying to grapple with some of these ideas about OTP and things like that. So yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out and we'll put that in as a resource. And uh, speaking about the situation uh, I got into and a uh, very article and the principles I pointed out, I think that uh, all this shows that solid principles can be used very widely. And each principle can be formulated and uh, it can be applied to any text uh, which isn't code even. For example, when we speak about single responsibility principle, uh, we say that there shouldn't be a single entity that uh, is being edited by several parties. And this is true even we are trying to edit some blog post and we make um, many insertions, we make many changes, and we mess our work with interfering with each other. And it is important to separate our entities so that people, uh, that the entities that are interested in these pieces of text, pieces of code, do not uh, interfere. So in your blog post, you also talked about your specific project. So maybe you could first tell us, what is this project that you're referring to, uh, just to kind of give us some context? The project I refer to is uh, SMPPX. X is for Elixir. And uh, SMPP is a binary protocol widely used in telecom. This is a library which implements this protocol over TCP. Its purpose is to send and receive uh, binary coded messages 
the nature of these messages is not very important. The important thing is that we often want to trace these messages. We, for example, as we have already mentioned, we may want log all the messages that pass through the sessions initiated by SMPP clients or service. Telemetry is a library for decoupling something from something. We do not add logging to our code. We just emit telemetry events one time. And then every logic that is asynchronous and um, important for us, for example, logging or increasing some counters or, for example, exporting metrics to some system, we do it uh, in a telemetry handler. We we may not uh, go to the code, to the main code, and uh, add uh, calls there. But the case is that even the emitting of telemetry events can be decoupled from our code, from the main code of the library. And even these calls, these emitting events, uh, brings additional dependency to the main project and with solid principles we may avoid adding this dependency to the main projects. We just make interfaces, we make uh, we use a pattern called a chain of responsibility <laughs> I think it is called uh, and we avoid adding even calls to telemetry to our code the whole thing is uh, in the separate library in SMPX telemetry. We implement interface that is required by some uh, SMPX library other modules and we just use this interface uh, that we implemented in our main library. So looking at your blog post, you had some nice examples where you're showing code that talk about some of this. And you talked about like the history of a pull request. And maybe you can kind of explain how can I do that then as part of that client solution? How What is the better way to do that? The main thing is to have interfaces and to rely on interfaces. Do not rely on some realizations. As we have interfaces, uh, these interfaces can be implemented by anyone who wants. And uh, it was the case. I told the team that wanted this um, addition that there is an interface that can be implemented and that was the case. They implemented a proxy interface uh, which contained all the logic they needed mm -hmm. and they didn't need to wait for me uh, when I uh, will have free time to add this fun functionality to the main library. And it is very important because, uh, well, I think that uh, this team has its own business. They have their own deadlines. And I do not have any deadlines with this library. And I can have a long, long vacation, for example. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's quite important. This is really important that independent party could implement all they needed without touching the original code and without, uh, well, of course, uh, forking the library, which is uh, always a solution, but is, uh, it is a very bad solution. As I understand it, then you're saying, okay, 
I was careful in creating this library. As a creator of a library, this is where we can be thinking about this and saying, I have these key parts of the process and I'm going to create behaviors. I'm going to define a behavior that says these are some callbacks so that you can write your client code, can plug into this process and be notified when certain things happen. Uh, So maybe you want to do some pre-processing or post-processing or emit logs or anything like that. What I loved about what you said there, if the library is designed that way, then the user of the library is not depending and waiting on you as the maintainer to be responsive, to say, I need this change. I'm on a deadline. You know, make, make this happen. You're able to break that cycle, right? You say, no, no, it's okay. You're fine. I, I designed it well. Here's the points where you plug in. And then you can go on your long vacation, right? So I just keep coming back to this open, closed principle and keep rereading it because I I feel like I understand what it means that software entities should be open for extension, but I don't understand what it means when it says, but closed for modification because it's like, does that mean you just like put your library into a vault and it cannot be changed? Like what, what exactly does it mean when it says closed for modification? This is um, (laughs) awkwardly formulated. But I understand this uh, in this way. When we want uh, to introduce some new functionality, a good example is uh, logging. We shouldn't put log uh, messages into our existing functions everywhere. We uh, should make, for example, a proxy interface. A good example is uh, Phoenix plugs. We do not write logger info in every handler of every request. We don't put these messages into the modules where we handle some passing of HTTP protocol. We just add a plug and this plug contains all the new functionality that we need. For example, the very plug library, when we add new plug with logging, we do not modificate old programming. We do not put code in it, but we extend the functionality by adding new programming entities. We add new plug, which is completely independent from all our code, but our library is constructed in that way that finally we have all the desired functionality. We just add the new plug. We add it to the uh, pipeline when we need, and we have all the required logging. Another example of the open close that I think of is uh, Ecto and change sets, right? We don't change the way that change sets works altogether just to add a new validation. We change, we create a new function that leverages the stable API of, of Ecto change sets to add more errors to it. That's extending it. That to me is a good, ex- and plug is another great example. Yeah, like that is open <laughs> to extension and we extend it all the time. But you can't really change the way that Ecto change sets or that plug works underneath. It's closed to modification, and uh, and like you said, you know, like there's there's ways that you can in object oriented software. What another way that might look like is you you inherit the the closed software, you add functions to it, and then the rest of your software would you know call that instead. So you haven't modified the original source. You don't disturb its clients, you know its users. You, you, the rest of your code is is using yours. And so in, in Rails, what this could look like is 
you're not necessarily inheriting from Rails's uh, controller all the time. You inherit from your application controller, your application controller, which itself inherits from Rails's you know act, uh, controller. So you have a spot for yourself to extend how the controller works uh, across your entire code base. So it's open to extension, closed for modification. One of the things I just want to add to that, like, you know, with Java, I know it's more of a formalized feature of the language. There's this idea of sealed classes, which says that, you know, it defines that you can't inherit from this, you know. And so a lot of those particular implementations of this principle don't really apply to Elixir because we're not talking about objects. We're not talking about inheritance. And I love the change set example. And yeah. I also think of the plug uh, request ID as an example, where request ID says, I want to be able to set a unique ID to all the requests that are coming through for this user. So this particular request, I can trace it all the way through my logs. It doesn't log anything itself. It's adding metadata to your process. And so whenever you say, I want to log something, it's stuck on that process and, and it's, yeah. it's used. I love that. It's, just an, it's an elegant solution there. But I think it still follows that principle. Yeah. Bring it back to some like practical examples of what these solid principles look like in Elixir code. Dependency injection, I think, and dependency inversion principle is what the principle is actually called, but I see it a lot as dependency injection. That's incredibly important to me, you know, in Elixir because you can't just monkey patch, you know, your, your, your code to, especially for tests. I, I often see this because of tests, really. One example that I find all the time is is uh, putting in dependency injection opportunities for your HTTP client. So <laughs> if you have to go make a request, an external request, anything that has to to talk outside of your system, an external uh, an external system, like that's a good opportunity I find for uh, dependency injection. Wrap that in a in a function, and then in tests you can pass in your own function that um, responds the way that you need you need it to, uh, wh whether that be stubs, whether that be like a cassette, you know, that you maybe write, you know, that's actually a real, uh, a real HTTP request that's, that's written, whatever you need, but that inverts the control, you know, to, to the code, the, the call site, which is incredibly needed. I, I didn't need it as much with Ruby because you just, you just monkey patch it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but with Elixir, I really had to, I really had to uh, have that principle in mind. Do you want to talk about what a cassette is in case somebody doesn't know what you're talking about? Like cassette yeah. in your test? What are you Yeah, sure. There's, there's a popular library out there called VCR in Ruby land. And it's also ported to Elixir called XVCR because we're, we're great at naming. Um, <laughs> and the idea here is that it will intercept the HTTP request. It will write it to a what it calls a cassette. Usually these are serialized in JSON or YAML. On the Ruby side, I think they use YAML. On the Elixir side, I think we use JSON. And when it sees a similar request based on a set of parameters, usually it's the URL or maybe the, the body, something like that. You, you can customize that, I think. If it sees that same request come in, it'll, it won't actually make a new request. And instead, it'll just read what was serialized to disk. It'll just play that back. Right. So there's a real music motif here. Um, <laughs> you're writing your, your cassettes and you're replaying them, uh, in your tests usually. The idea there, uh, is, is, so it's essentially automating stubs there. But the idea, I think, is to often rewrite your, cause, or re-record your cassette. So like, you know, like you're listening to the radio, you got your own cassette, rewrite <laughs> it 
overwrite it with with new stuff because you you run the risk of just like with stubs you run the risk of um, those those responses actually changing in the real world and not being reflected in your in your tests well Ilya, we're coming up to our time is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't already touched on the thing about which i'm very concerned is that when we talk about article in our modern world, uh, people often uh, tend to imagine some uh, old uh, man that draw diagrams for a week and uh, uh, then, and only then, began to code. I think that it's not the case. And when we write code, we can't opt out architecture. Finally, we just get bad design if we don't think about it. And uh, the important thing is that when we add anything, we should think about how our architecture changes. And even if we have our architecture, well, as a couple of boxes (laughs) in our head, it is an architecture and it is important. To realize how our changes uh, influence this architecture, I had a very good example about it. Uh, there was a very messy project, well, not in Elixir, but in Rails, where nobody can't, uh, couldn't understand anything, how all worked, how to introduce new EU features. And after some investigation, the developers and the analysts introduced a single model, just a single model. After we introduced this model, which just put two pieces of data in a single model, everything became very clear. All the new features were formulated very easily. I want to say that we do not live in a brilliant platonic world of perfect ideas. We are surrounded with old and messy code, but when we think about architecture and we introduce uh, some logic and some architecture in our very old and probably messy code, we may benefit a lot. One of the things I loved about our discussion, though, is just this idea that principles are still applicable. You know, the wisdom that came from the object-oriented history of computing, that still applies to our Elixir systems. Just because, you know, I came from object-oriented through my career path, it doesn't mean that I throw away all the previous knowledge and wisdom and experience I had, because a lot of it still applies. Some of the specific implementations about how I write code might be different, because I don't have objects and inheritance. But I also think like just like the Agile Manifesto, like how that was created, it wasn't a, this is how you organize code. It wasn't even, this is how we're going to create a thing called sprints. They didn't do any of that, right? That was not part of the Agile Manifesto. It was a set of principles of, we value this, and we think this is important, and it's perhaps even more important than this other thing. And that's all it is. So we can apply those principles to our Elixir code, to our projects, to our teams, And I love that you're just like saying, hey, you know, there's some really good stuff here in the solid principles. It still applies. So dear listener, if you haven't checked out his article, it's linked in the show notes. I thought it was great. It came down to like code examples with behaviors and making it very real. But Ilya, if people want to get in touch with you or follow you online, what's the best way to do that? Well, the most active part of my social life is probably my GitHub and uh Probably my Twitter, well, it's not very active, but, uh, well, it's a way to reach me because I read it a lot. Awesome. Well, Ilya, thank you for coming on and taking the time to 
help see how these solid principles still apply to Elixir code, even though I'm not writing objects. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.